BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to the Balanced Black Girl Podcast. We're putting black girl magic in motion. This show is dedicated to reinventing wellness for women of color. I'm your host, Lestrandra Alfred. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Balanced Black Girl Podcast. If you are a new listener, thank you so much for tuning in and welcome. And if you are a returning listener, thank you so much. Welcome back. And I am so happy to have you here. So something that I would love to start incorporating more of into these weekly episodes are a bit about my personal favorites. So on Instagram, if you're not following me on Instagram at balanceless, I do get quite a few messages about recommendations of things that I love, products that I like to use, Black woman-owned businesses to support. Of course, a lot of guests on the show are entrepreneurs who have Black women-owned businesses And in their interviews, you can hear all about that. And sometimes I just find things that I really love and want to share about and haven't yet had a chance to interview uh, the person behind it and just want to share. So before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to tell you about a favorite that I am loving. And this is totally not sponsored. This is just something that I really love right now, which is the Organic Bath Co. Naked Organic Body Butter. So a few weeks ago, I was in Boston attending the inbound marketing conference, which was a great time. And I went to one of the Black at Inbound meetups. So uh, a couple years ago on Twitter, an individual who had been going to Inbound for a couple of years started the hashtag Black at Inbound and started tagging folks, started creating meetups around it. And each year it's gotten a little bit bigger with the Black marketing professionals who meet and commune during inbound. And so I went to one of the Black at Inbound meetups and a party favor that they had for everybody was the Organic Bath Co. Naked Organic Body Butter. And I'm like, first of all, this is my kind of party. If I walk in and I get to walk out with a jar of shea butter, everybody walks out with a jar of shea butter. That's my kind of party. Second of all, the next day, I tried it and absolutely loved it. So it's a really, really light body butter with a shea butter base that is just super moisturizing. It's not greasy, but you know, not going to be out here ashy. I really, really liked it. I dove a bit more to uh, learn about Organic Bath Co. and found that they have a ton of really great skincare and body care products. So definitely check them out if you haven't already. That is kind of my favorite of this week. And I will link them in the show notes so that you can check out their body butter and other products if you would like. So let me know if you like me including these favorites of things that I'm loving. I don't know if I'll do it 
it every single week because, you know, I'm balling on a budget, so I don't necessarily buy things all the time to have new things to share. But as I find things that I love, I am happy to share it with all of you because I feel like if I like something, you might too, or you might at least appreciate the recommendation. So let me know if you like that segment and I will continue to do so. So let's dive into today's episode. The time that this episode is coming out, it is September. That means it is back to school. A lot of folks have gone back to school already for high school and below, or if you're in college under a quarter system, you're probably going right back to school now. And I'm really, really excited to share this conversation about education with my guest, Adrian Thomas. So I actually met Adrian this summer when I attended the Fear Her Fight Athletics Strength Summit, which if you're not familiar with Fear Her Fight, I did interview the founder, Maria Rodriguez, who is phenomenal several episodes ago. So I'll make sure I also link that in the show notes so that you can learn more about Maria and Fear Her Fight. Um, Adrian spoke at the Strength Summit this summer and I just immediately felt so connected to her and so connected to the work that she was doing. So much so that soon after, pretty much as soon as the summit ended, I ran up to her and was like, hi, not to be weird, but I really loved everything you said. Can you come on my podcast? And thankfully, she said yes. And I have just really enjoyed getting to know her over the past few months. I really enjoyed having this conversation with her. And I'm really excited to share it with you. So Adrian is an unapologetically black educator who hails from the city of Chicago. She's a passionate social advocate with a focus on black liberation. And while she is also a power lifter and musician, her passion lies within classroom education, where her goal is to create inclusive curriculum that truly supports the lived experiences of our diverse students and children. So we had a really great conversation about everything from education, what inspired her to get into education, ways that we can create more inclusive curriculum for our students. Uh, as you heard, she is also a power lifter. And so we got to talk about her journey with that. And we just had a really, really wonderful conversation that I am so happy to invite you into. So without further ado, let's jump into the episode so that you can get to know Adrian a little better. Adrian, thank you so much for coming on the show. I am so excited to chat with you about so many topics today. Um, but I would love to start by giving our audience a chance to get to know you a little bit better. So can you tell us a bit more about your background and what inspired your passion for education? Yeah, um, so I'm always really bad at being short. Okay. <laughs> so I'll try to give a gist of it because I also <laughs> think that just like, every aspect of who you are really does influence, excuse me, um, your life really does influence who you are. So yeah. it's, it's really hard to kind of be like, I'm this because of this, when it's like this big bulk of things, um, you know, being the oldest of four, um, being from a black family, like being in a predominantly white suburb, like that has all influenced me. So in short, I am the oldest of four siblings. I'm actually a twin, but I pretend that I'm the oldest because I <laughs> technically am by three minutes. And, you know, I grew up with my family, put up, we were black in a predominantly white spaces, you know, that really influenced my upbringing. I spent a lot of time on white, white people, you know, I didn't really have people around me that looked like me that I could relate to. And 
that was something that I talk about a lot, not having the language to really understand that as a child, even as a teenager. But it was something that has definitely impacted me. I have always been in love with music. I tried to do the sports thing in high school, was never amazing at it. <laughs> and then I moved to Chicago for school in 2011. Um, and I had a really untraditional path to school. You know, I moved here, I was poor, I didn't have money for school. So my journey in trying to finish school, discovering who I was, balancing, you know, these life that I had in Michigan and that upbringing with this new life that I had in Chicago, where I was around such diversity. And then really just starting to dive into education um, was something that all kind of contributed to who I am. I talk about education all the time. People are like, how'd you get into it? Why do you want to do it? And it's because I never thought I could be a teacher growing up. Like, I feel like often we meet teachers, they're like, I knew I want to teach since I was in the third grade. <laughs> like, you know, it's a lot of people, but you know, they've grown up with that nurturing idea. And I feel like as a child, I always saw educators or teachers. First of all, I didn't like most of the teachers, um, but then the ones that I did have, I always saw them as like these amazingly smart human beings. And I never saw myself as smart. <laughs> you know, I didn't think I was intelligent. Um, so it was never something that even crossed my path. You know, I moved to Chicago to study music. And in that process of trying to figure out music, trying to work, I kind of was like coming to the terms of, okay, maybe this music thing isn't the best route for me being so poor, but also like, what can I do? And what am I going to do? And during that time, I'd been working at children's places and babysitting and nannying. And I don't know how it came up, but one day in conversation, probably with myself, because I talked to myself a lot, I was like, oh, maybe I should teach. And it was the first time that it even really crossed my mind to think about doing it. And the more I sat with it, the more I was like, oh, no, maybe I can actually do this. Like, you know, maybe this is something I can do. And it's not just a job that I have to do to pay bills, you know, to get by, but a job that I can like really love doing. So I left my school, was on a break for a little bit because I was poor. I started a new school all over. And luckily, the program that I get got into in um, Chicago was heavily situated around social justice and education and how to incorporate social justice into our educational spaces. And that just fell in line so much with what makes me passionate. And I just fell in love. I was like, I know I want to do this. During this process, I started powerlifting too. So I got to begin to meld those worlds of powerlifting and fitness and inclusion and diversity and social justice and all of that smashed into one. And it's just really has what's contributed to me being the person I am today. <laughs> Why I have such varied interests. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, but that's so good. And I feel like I want to dive into each of those things, each of those parts of your story that you talked about. I would really love to dive more into because I think that they're very relatable and oftentimes stories that don't get to be told. One of the things you said that jumped out at me is you said when you were younger, you wouldn't have pictured yourself being a teacher because you didn't think that you were smart or you didn't feel smart. And I'm wondering why do you think that was? Was it because of either, you know, teachers that you had? Was it because of of what they defined smart as? Like, why, why did you feel that way when you were younger? Yeah, so I think it's, it's layered because it's partially my own like interpretation of myself, but also mm -hmm. like my interpretation of myself is influenced by the society I live in, right? Yeah, so yeah. like I said, I didn't see a lot of 
powerful, smart black people growing up. Mm-hmm. I knew they existed. My parents did their absolute best to instill in me that we could do anything and we could be anything and that there are great, smart black people all around us in the world, even if I didn't have direct vision, uh, excuse me, direct sight, I guess is the word to use to them, but I didn't see them. Right. So even Mm -hmm. if you're being told these messages, like what influences you growing up the most is what you see and what's readily available. Right. And Mm -hmm. I didn't have many black teachers. So that's one layer of it. Right. The other layer of it too, is that we know from looking at classrooms that they do not um, facilitate positive learning spaces for black and brown students. And something I talk about often is that parents often want their kids to be successful in life. And especially with children of color, black parents, they want their kids to be successful. They see education as a means to have that success. And what that often looks like is putting children in schools that they deem successful and they're going to be the most beneficial. And unfortunately, because of the way resources are distributed within our society, those spaces often look the same way. They're white spaces. So you're putting these students into these spaces where they don't see people like them. They don't get to be around people that look and sound like them. And then these spaces are failing them because they don't actually understand those black students. You know, for me, I spent so much time, time to assimilate into my school that like learning was never the priority. As much as I loved having conversations and I loved talking and like having just discussions about whatever we were learning, it wasn't a priority. Uh, Another level to it for me is I do have ADHD. So that was always an issue too of like, you know, I remember being like third, fourth grade and people being like, there's something wrong with her. <laughs> um, so just like I never really had a space where it was reinforced that I was smart. Right. And I was intelligent and I could do all these great things, even if I was getting it from home. It wasn't being reiterated in your learning environment. And that's where you build so much of your first steps of identity. Right. Like it's where you make your first friends. It's where you meet your first mentors, your first role models. And in those spaces, which are always predominantly white, I was never like seen positively in that. I have vivid memories. It's so funny. My principal and my elementary school was honestly a creep looking back on it, but he was a white man and he strongly disliked me. I remember having like getting in trouble all the time with him, but he was like really sweet to my twin sister who was definitely, um, she fair skin closer to passing, I guess you could say. And just seeing that relationship and dynamic with them and just never being on the receiving end of positive uh, talk. So I know that definitely impacted how I viewed myself because I just never thought. And then as school went on, you know, we talk about math um, and programs that I am with education because I'm not a math person. And but I never learned to math. Right. I was doing it. I was doing OK. Things got difficult. And then they gave me a calculator and then they just put me in classes. And it wasn't until like high school that I realized I couldn't even do I couldn't multiply double digits without a calculator like Mm -hmm. it's things like that right so you know while I may have been getting along getting by excuse me and you know hustling and figuring things out I wasn't actually learning it felt like so therefore I never really felt like I was smart and that sucks that's something I missed out on I often I don't regret any way that my life has gone because it's made me who I am but I definitely say that I feel like I missed out on a lot of positive opportunities as a child yeah absolutely And I I think that also then lends to your impact as an educator when you have students who you may see who may feel that way or who may feel aspects of your story or see aspects of that in them that you can relate to them and understand 
understand what they're going through. Yeah, for sure. I um, We've been talking about this a lot. I actually just accepted a new position at a school and we were having some conversations about this and this idea of like, we always value what our students bring to the classroom. It's really big in a lot of modern programs now to talk about our students' assets and what they bring to the classroom and how their experiences can really impact their learning environment. And I think it's also just as important to value the educators who are coming in who can relate to those students. I'm, I'm joining a predominantly white staff, but it's just been nice because they do seem to really value my input as a black woman, as a poor black woman, um, and what my schooling experience is like and how that's impacted how I interact with students. Uh, Because it is, you know, it's so valuable and to use that and to understand not every student is going to have the exact same experience as me, but to be able to be like, hey, I get it. (laughs) Like I get some part of it. Yeah. It's a really special thing that often students don't get to see. Absolutely. And I would love to dive a bit more into the diverse curriculum side of things as well, because that's something that you mentioned um, in your training, in your program, that you attended a program that talked about the intersection of kind of social justice and diverse curriculum and education. So I'm really curious, as someone who's not in the education space, who hasn't been to school in a really long time, realizing, (laughs) looking back on it, I am pretty sure that I did not learn from a diverse set of curriculum. What does that mean for students today? And what does that look like? Yeah, so the main thing that we are looking at when we talk about diverse curriculum is it's it's layered. There's some aspects you have to understand. But the first thing is really understanding that the current structures of school, and that's looking at like what the students are taught, how they're being taught those things, mm-hmm. has been written and continued by white men. Right? White men have written it because they've been the group in power. They structured schooling, and schooling has been modeled off of what they value as um, valuable. Right? So it was created by white men, and then it's been continued to be passed down, and you know used by white women who continue to facilitate these learning structures that simply are, they're failing students, right? And especially students of color, especially students who don't have the same access. So when we're looking at diverse curriculum um, and using social justice as a mean for means for curriculum, we're looking at finding ways to incorporate the students' lives, that's the number one thing, into the curriculum and making sure that it's representative of the students. Like I said, often the stories that students hear and, you know, school is the law, right? You go to school, they tell you things You're like, oh, this is true. Yep. <laughs> but so often the stories that are told in school are lies. Like, <laughs> like, I don't even like, I don't even like being like, they're been, they're straight up lies. <laughs> like, <laughs> like the story of Christopher Columbus is a lie. Like yes. the way we teach it to children is a lie. Um, so we're looking at like one, dismantling those systems that uphold those stories. And then two, um, I guess you can use the word decolonizing education, right? We're trying to find a way to, break down the ways in which white supremacy, white supremacy has infiltrated and impact, um, influence, excuse me, education and actually representing black and brown students. So when we say diverse education, that could look like so many different things, right? It yeah. could look like, hey, just valuing what the students bring to the classroom and not using a deficit deficit perspective to view the student, but instead using an asset. Instead of saying, oh, well, John's poor and John has to drive the bus to school for 10 hours. That's so dramatic. Two hours every day. <laughs> That's why he's late all the time. John only speaks Spanish at home. Instead of looking at those as negatives, looking at those as positives. Hey, John speaks Spanish and English. He's a strong translator. That's great decoding skills to be able to do that. Hey, 
John has to ride the bus two hours every day, but he reads a book every day on the way, right? Instead of say looking at the negative ways that people often characterize students, looking at the positives. Another thing is putting representation into our books. You know, I talk about it all the time. Students, black, especially black and brown students, do not see themselves inside of books, black, brown, and queer students, right? Mm -hmm. There's not books in the classroom that talk about queer experiences. There aren't books in the classrooms that talk about um, black students. You know, how many wizarding books are there with a black lead who's like not focusing just on them being black, but like, like they're just a black character living their life, right? Kids don't get exposed to that. Even like the posters that are hanging in the classrooms, the textbooks that we use, they're all predominantly white students, right? So we're trying to find ways to infiltrate that to make sure that our students are represented because if students feel like they're represented, if they feel like their voice is heard, if they feel like their experience is valid, it's going to be a much more positive learning environment. And therefore, all the other academic stuff that you want to do, it's going to come, right? And that's one thing that we talk about a lot is that the number one priority in education is relationships. Mm-hmm. It's building relationships with your students, building a safe environment for them to be themselves. The learning stuff will come. Children are naturally inquisitive. They want to learn. They want to experience new things, but they're not going to want to do that in a space where they're not comfortable or a space where they don't feel represented or a space where they feel like their ideas are going to be shut down. So the number one thing that we're looking at when we're talking about diverse representation is like starting with, hey, we got to build relationships. We got to make sure the space represents our students. We got to make sure they're comfortable. Next, we really want to make sure that we are breaking up these stories and these narratives that aren't true, like simply just shutting them down. There's no space for books or stories that are harmful to students, books or stories that are straight up lies, like getting rid of that. And then three, all the other academic stuff will come along the way. And you can find ways to incorporate different social justice aspects into your teaching. So looking at math, you can do a math problem. And maybe instead of just saying like, here's a story about Sally and the gum balls in the machine in the store, you can have kids look at the relationships of like, how many grocery stores are in this block x block radius and how does that look compared to this other neighborhood and what is those incomes of like kids can do that and then mm-hmm. by giving them those tools and they have this cool way to say hey i did this math problem right but i also did this math problem and in that math problem we looked at kids access to grocery stores looked at income and then through that they're able to piece together all this stuff and come up with their own that like oh yeah food deserts exist and it's not fair because poor communities have them and like you they can get that even without the exact language but they start to understand that if you create those tools to integrate those topics into the classrooms you know even little things like guided readings you can pick text that really gives students an opportunity to work and talk through things that they normally wouldn't let's not read another you know random book that's fun it might be a fun story but hey maybe read this short story sorry i'm thinking back to a story that I did with a guided reading with my kids. Um, and it was a story of, I think it was a Puerto Rican man and he was on the bus in New York or the train in New York and um, a white woman and her three kids got on the train. And the whole story is told from his perspective. And it's literally like him talking to himself about if he should offer her help and like what would happen if he did and it was wrong, right? Mm. And it's such a short story, but like kid, the kids had such a great conversation. I was like, why do you think he was having such a dilemma asking her that? And they talked about it. Oh, you know, maybe he's afraid that she might stereotype him. Maybe he's a, she's a, he's afraid that he might get in trouble. And like kids can piece that together. And this is you providing those tools and those opportunities for them. I think often people are afraid and they think that social justice curriculum or diverse curriculum is like forcing ideas on kids. And it's not, it's just giving the kids the tools that they often have not had. Like, 
our education system is racist. <laughs> like period, point blank, facts are facts. <laughs> like and people are like, that's not, it's true. Like if something is what it is, you call it what it is and you work on fixing it. If you give them the tools, they can begin to decipher that and make their own sense of it. And I also, I know we had chatted at uh, Maria's event. Mm-hmm. I talked mm-hmm. about um, at that event, this idea of people are afraid of diverse curriculum, right? When I yeah. say LGBTQ inclusive curriculum, people are like, oh my gosh, it's going to talk to the babies about gay sex. <laughs> like, and it's not that at all, right? It's, it's just like you wouldn't throw a kid. I said, um, if you want a kid to be like a a mathematician, you wouldn't say, here, kid, calculate the things. You would slowly build the skills to allow him to interact with that. So same with LGBTQ inclusive curriculum. Like you're looking at giving students the tools and the representation to help them understand these ideas. Right now, our schools are so structured around this like gender binary, right? It's girl, boy, girl, boy. There's gendered play spaces, girls playing kitchen, boys play on the soccer field or basketball field. Um, if two of a boy and a girl are friends in kindergarten, they're like, oh my God, they're boyfriend and girlfriend. Like it's so um, structured on the binary. So the first step of that is like unteaching children that, right? Yes. The next step is in the classroom, instead of all the books being about mom and dad, maybe one of the books, not one of the books, many of the books have two mommies or many of the books have two daddies or many of the books have one mommy. Right. Like really getting this understanding of like representation. And then because kids are exposed to it, they can start to really understand it. What's happened traditionally is that we try to hide our children from things and then like we want to drop the bomb on them in sixth, seventh, eighth grade or maybe even later, and they don't have the tools to understand it because it's an overload. You need to start. And the thing is, kids are seeing this, right? Like it's not a secret. It's all around them. So if you are able to effectively give them the tools and access to this information, understand it and ask questions in an open environment, that's the best way to foster learning that is going to be um, productive and help eliminate like all the issues we have, right? It all starts in school. Like you build your identity in school. Absolutely. So yeah, sorry, I talk in circles. So (laughs) (laughs) it was not a circle at all. That was fantastic. And I think that, I mean, there's so much power in that, because a lot of the things that you touched on kids see it, and they may not fully understand it, they may not fully understand what a food desert is, or if they see another kid who has, you know, parents where they have two moms or two dads, they may not fully understand it, but kids pick up on these things. So why wouldn't you give them the tools and the language to understand these things that are very much real life early on. I know. And parents are, people are, not parents, but people are just so afraid in general. I think definitely right now we are in this in between of like, for so long, people just were okay with being quiet. It was like, fall in line. Your best chance of success is assimilating. Don't make too much of ruckus. Don't make too much of a noise. Just keep it moving. And we're getting into this generation where like, we've got some loud folks who are like, ah, actually, nah, I'm going to pass on that. So it's just balancing that out. I mean, even I have a sister that's 10 years younger than me. So it is very dramatic to see even the way she's grown up in the society she's developed in just in 10 years is so much different than mine. And they really are so much more inclusive. And I think it's because visibility, right? Like we didn't see queer people on TV for so long. Like we didn't see brown and black bodies on TV. And now that we are seeing that and not just TV, but kids have access to social media now too, which is a positive and a negative, Um, but they have so much more access and visibility to things that look like them and sound like them. And that helps them develop. Right. So they're going to see it. 
There needs to not be any shame or fear. And I think it just is breaking old habits. We for so long have just been fine with going with the status quo and chugging along. And we got to break that because change just doesn't happen with us being, you know, complacent and just hanging around. Like you have to shake shit up. Um, and well, and, and speaking of change, I mean, how do those of us who either don't work in education help support continuing to drive these important changes? Or even for parents, maybe they have children who are learning in schools that are not necessarily focused on diverse, inclusive curriculum. What can they do to also help support this? Yeah, so I think there's like steps for everyone, right? Yeah. I think for parents, a big thing is, uh, I don't even, it's so hard because education is really such a privileged thing and access is, it's hard. Like in theory, you're like, parents, when you go to schools, ask questions, ask what they value, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. But like many neighborhoods, parents and students don't, they go to their neighborhood school, right? Yep. They go to wherever their kid can walk to. I live in the city of Chicago. They go to wherever the kid they can bus to. There's not that um, option of choice. So I think the really big thing is facilitating conversations with the teacher um, and really getting an idea of what they value and even expressing deeply what you value. You know, in teacher circles, people often talk about how afraid they are of parent pushback about certain things, right? I think that it really does go a long way with you as a parent showing your support, you know, even if it doesn't mean you're there, right? Because people often try to shame parents. Oh, the parents don't come around. The parents don't come to the school. The parents don't help. Parents are busy, right? Mm -hmm. And like, Many parents are working multiple jobs, 50 plus hours a week. Like they're not, they may not be around. Right. But I think that knowing that those parents support and trust you with their children and their classroom Mm -hmm. is a really big thing. I think that a huge thing is going to be like, like, it's so hard because our schools won't drastically change. Um, without a overall like societal change, yep. but also yeah. our society won't change without our schools changing. Mm-hmm. Like it's just like it's double chicken or the egg. Like. Yeah, exactly. It's like which comes first. I really do think that as we continue to push conversations in our spaces, no matter what it is, right? So um, maybe it's fitness, maybe it's fencing, maybe it's arts, whatever it might be. I do think that the more we have these conversations about around diversity inclusion and the importance of representation, the more people get familiar with it and they're less afraid to speak about it. I find that often people are afraid. They don't know where to start. They think they don't have the right language. They think they don't know the right thing to say or how to say it. And they don't. But if we're continuously having these conversations in our communities, we're exposing people to it. And they're getting the base language and they're starting to understand it. And that as they continue to take those into their other spaces, we're really starting to shift the way we see people. Um, for so long, I, I focus generally on um, black students. So that's why I keep coming back to that. But mm-hmm. for so long, you know, black people have been seen really negatively in our society. There's a very negative stigma. And a big chunk of that impacts our students in our schools, right? Like black boys' bodies they don't get to be boys. Like black boys are criminalized from, from, from childhood. Um, you know, black boys are, I don't know the exact number, but it's a very high number are more likely to be suspended or expelled from school, um, for the exact same things that their white counterparts do. Like we have to really start within our society on destigmatizing black and brown bodies or queer bodies or whatever it might be, because I think that as you start to see that shift in our society, it'll translate to our school. Looking on the school front, I really do think that working to uh, people, it's so hard with politicians, but I still am like, do what we can within politics. Um, (laughs) Getting people elected that truly do value education 
Yes. Is key because people don't. Um, I think that broadly as a society, especially in the States, um, people don't value educators. So really getting politicians in place that value educators and are going to put systems in place to benefit those educators and support them. Um, maybe it's looking into the school board. Um, maybe it's looking into who's actually writing the policies for that school district. And it's, if seeing if those are elected officials, if they are getting in on making sure those elected officials that are helping with the school board things are people who are inclusive, who want diversity, who understand the complex systems um, that students have to learn in. But I think it's, yeah, to summarize, thing one is just like always talking about diversity and inclusion in any space you're in, because as we have those conversations, it shifts the general um, focus of our society and a general idea and helps make it more acceptable um, not acceptable. It's a weird word. Um, welcoming to non-white folks, right. Who often are not welcome. Thing two is if you're looking directly at the schools is showing up if you can, right. Or being around when you can talking to the teachers directly, talking to the principals, talking to the school board members, figuring out who the heck is in charge and who is in charge of writing things and making sure that that reflects what you want. I think the biggest thing does really come down to supporting teachers, I will say I've been shocked in the last year because I, like I said, I trained in a social justice program. So everything I did centered around that. Mm -hmm. I just thought, I just thought all education was like that. And I've met so many teachers in the last year. I'm like, oh yeah, because my program did X, Y, Z, you know, you too. And they were like, no, like there actually are so many educators. And I feel so lucky because I'm not one of them, but there's so many educators whose programs don't focus on any of this. It's just like, this is the curriculum and here's fun things. And like, this is how you teach and here's some differentiated instruction, but none of it focuses on like the child's development. Well, it does. They'll focus on child development, but then they'll completely negate the fact that like the social um, stereotypes that impact the child's development. So I think that's also, I don't know what that might look like, but Maybe that's having conversations with the teacher, right? And then mm-hmm. you find out through that, oh, this teacher kind of doesn't know. She doesn't know. Like, maybe I could suggest um, some options for them. Maybe I can just have a conversation with them. Maybe I just share my experience. You know, there may be some pushback because people are uncomfortable with having conversations like this, especially people who, you know, you often find that teachers go into education on some white saviorism shit. Like, they go in like, I'm going to go teach in the inner cities and help all the poor kids. And like, while their intentions may be like positive, like they want to help, it's focused on them viewing themselves as this like good deed that they're doing and how they're going to help. And it's situating around their experience and it does a disservice to students. And when you call it out, sometimes it can be really uncomfortable. But I think that is just a part of continuously holding people accountable. And hey, maybe that means that teacher leaves because they're mad that you're challenging them. Cool. Maybe someone else will come in that's better. Like mm-hmm. it is really complicated though, because there are so many things that impact parents and their decisions for their students. Um, especially in Chicago. I mean, Chicago, there's there's public schools, there's magnet schools, there's Montessori, public public Montessori's, there's selective enrollment high schools. It's just like insane. I remember when I first moved here and like learned about the schooling system, I was like, these poor children (laughs) and the poor parents, like, oh my God. Absolutely. Well, but I think that there's a lot of really good tangible advice in there. And I mean, like you said, the education system is so complex across the board. 
even in other cities. And I mean, I think it's funny that you mentioned that you were surprised that other teachers didn't have that same kind of training or, or that same background, that that was kind of rare. Because when I heard you speak at Maria's event, I mean, honestly, that was the first time I'd ever heard of a, a teacher focusing on this or having been trained in this area. Not to say that I'm like the end all be all for knowing what all teachers learn. Uh, but I do know quite a few teachers and I, I'd never met someone or heard someone talk about this before. Um, so I think that there are a lot of opportunities to include yeah no for sure it's just insane and that's what i was saying i feel bad because it's so hard to kind of wrap up things we don't have all day i could literally talk to anyone all day about like in depth um this even like we're joking at the um maria's event i was like girl look i was like i'm either gonna be right on time or i'm gonna be like way under because I, I either like I mean I said way over or way under because I'm either like super simplifying it for the sake of not talking so much because that's how I am I know in advance I talk a lot or I'm just like let's just give you everything start to finish yeah. <laughs> and like um so that's I'm like I feel y'all are just getting the like a small tidbit of like what this looks like um if anyone ever wants to talk with me let me know because it's my jam but yeah. yeah I mean it's just so and it was so shocking. And then the more I've met teachers in Chicago, I think specifically, or like urban cities like New York, like Chicago, like LA, a lot of the programs are transitioning to focusing on stuff like this because they understand the way it impacts our students. But like, I bet you in my hometown, Macomb, Michigan, those, those, those folks aren't talking about this. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, it's, it just blows me. Cause I'm like, how can you put these people in these classrooms with these kids? And like, they, I mean, cause it's also, I'm so bad with stats, but like the majority of teachers are white women yep. and that includes in brown, black and brown communities. So like you're putting these people who don't belong to this community, who don't understand the community into these spaces and then having them teach our children. And they have no understanding of this, this student's experience. And sometimes they might even, um, be so situated around like defending themselves that they reject the student's opinions. You know, I had a friend when she was student teaching, she was in a classroom with a white woman, predominantly um, Latinx uh, students. And the students had brought up white privilege. Like they brought it up. And my friend is, like I said, she's with me. She's in my program. She was like, let's talk about it. Like, mm -hmm. and as she's trying to really delicately explain this and have this great conversation, which I wasn't there, but she's a great educator. I'm sure she was killing it. The teacher interjected and said, well, I'm white. I don't have white privilege. Oh, God. Right. So now you have this oh. white woman in this room with all these students, these brown students having a conversation with uh, the teacher. My friend is Filipino um, about white privilege. And this white woman interjects and says, like, oh, that's not true. And those are the people, no offense, that we're sending in our teach our kids. Yeah. It just sucks. Yeah. And like there isn't. It seems so helpless sometimes because, like, we need teachers. But like I said before, so much of it does sit around this idea of, like, white saviorism. And, like, they want to go in and save the babies. But, like, oh, that Freedom Riders. I feel like every educational program that's social justice oriented, like, slams Freedom Riders. Like, that movie <laughs> trash. But it is very, like, white saviorism. And, like, that's not what education is about. It's not about you saving the kids. It's about you giving them the space to develop their own ideas and to take those out into the world and interact with it because they have to. Absolutely. And we're not preparing our students. That's not fair to them. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think what the point that you made earlier that I really loved and would just love to reiterate where you said, you know, school is really where kids can can form their thoughts and form their identities. And when you think about it that way, it's even if you are in an underserved community, you don't necessarily need to save someone to help them exactly. do that. You give them tools, you give them space, you have honest conversations with them and and allow them to do it. Yeah, exactly. Because and this doesn't sound negative because every student should be able to do hopefully what they want in life. But we know that's not the case. Right. We know this system that we live in doesn't give people the same opportunities. I talk a lot about job shaming because I hate that Mm -hmm. shit. Like I hate people who job shame because the reality is the vast majority of Americans don't do a job they love. If you do, that's great for you. And you're super lucky. I feel like I am super lucky because of that. But most people don't. Right. They do jobs to make a living and provide for their family and hopefully find something outside of their job that brings them joy. So it doesn't need to always be about saving kids or setting them up for X, Y, Z. It's about just giving our students the tools to understand themselves. Because if you have a good understanding of yourself and who you are and what you value, that's going to help you navigate this world no matter where you go. Maybe it is to go on and be a CEO. Maybe it's to go on and be the president. Or maybe it's to run um, you know, a clothing store. Maybe it's to run a dry cleaning thing. Maybe it's to work at Home Depot. Whatever it is, though, mm-hmm. if you're really building that self-identity and worth and value and giving them the tools to understand the system, it just is so strong, right? Because then they're able to know like, hey, I, even if like worse came to worse, they know that they're a product of this trash system and it's not them. Because especially in America, especially with capitalism, we teach our kids and everyone in our society that if you just work hard, You'll achieve everything you want. And then when people don't achieve these things that they want, when they don't achieve these huge dreams because they're just far off, far fucking out of reach, Mm -hmm. they feel like there's something wrong with them. And then they're struggling internally with their identity, their self-worth, their value, like all of that. And it's just, it's not fair. So if we really just teach kids to interact with this system, understand it and understand their own identity, it just gives them so much power, even in a system that's super, 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 super unfair. Boom. There is so much power in that. And I'm like, heck, even as an adult, I'm like, I'd still want to learn the tools how to do that. Yeah, <laughs> It's so important. It's hard because we're taught like, especially even with like this Instagram, like, as an adult, this culture of like, you know, people, you know, you have these like beautiful women who are like, I just quit and took a risk and look what happened. And it's like, well, yeah, that happened for you. And that's so great. And I'm sure you, maybe you did really, really hard to get it. But like, also, I always say that like success is a product of privilege and hard work. It's not just your hard work. Mm -hmm. Like it's a, uh, it's a result of being in the right place at the right time, maybe having the right connection, maybe having that one good like day where someone shared something like, especially in this culture of like Instagram and influencing, like that is a huge thing. And so it does frustrate me. Sometimes I see these women shelling out like buy my $5,000 program and I can show you how to be an influencer. It's like the life you lead is the exception, not the rule. And I think that's just super important to continue reminding us as even adults that we are not failures because we don't succeed in the system because we're, we literally all cannot succeed in the capitalist system, capitalist system. It's literally not possible. Exactly. Like we can't. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. Oh, so good. So, so good. (laughs) I rant. (laughs) No, I love it. I love a good rant. Rant away. That's what we're here for. So I would love to transition a little bit to also talk about fitness, because as we mentioned earlier, 
Um, you have also had experience as a power lifter and I would love to talk a little bit more about your power lifting journey and what brought you to the power lifting space. Yeah. So it's so funny. Cause I remember, I mean, even just like last year, powerlifting was still like the center of my world. And I wouldn't say it's not now. I still, I'm still training. I still pay coach. I still work in my tail off. I'm not posting about it often. Um, but it's still something that's important to me, but just doesn't take up that space in my life as it once did. And that's okay. Um, I got into powerlifting because I got into fitnessing as I call it to lose weight. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to fitness. You know, like I said, I tried to do the sports thing in high school it was never amazing. I did track and field, um, in high school it was all right. You know, I, I was all right. Like I was decent. Um, and then I moved here. I was never really a, a runner distance runner. I never was super athletic. My family is athletic. My twin sister is a basketball player. She played basketball in college. Like I just, it wasn't my thing. Um, so I gained a lot of weight when I first moved to Chicago. And I remember being like, every time I saw a picture, I was like, I hate myself. It was just so gross. So I decided to fitness and I was like, I'm going to fitness and I'm going to figure it out. And I started running because that was just the most accessible thing. I was poor, but you can, if you got shoes, you can run. Yep. Um, so I started off with running and doing like, like, oh, what was it? Jillian Michaels. What was that? Like 30. There was some like video where like, it was like, oh yeah, she had like a shred. It was like the yeah, Jillian Michaels like, like shred or whatever. Exactly. And yeah. I was doing that in my living room and running. And um, at the time, my best friend was I was actually friending her as I call it. Um, but she's not my best friend. <laughs> um, this was years ago. She had started lifting just like weight. So I started researching, um, like what weightlifting was. Cause you know, I was on people like, Oh, if I lift, like I, I won't look a desirable way, like whatever that might be. Um, so I was like, let's see what this lifting thing is. And I started seeing like these girls who were like lifting weights, but they're like hot as hell. And I was like, Oh yeah, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do this. <laughs> um, so I remember I was, um, I had no money at this time. So I found like the closest to my apartment that was $10 a month. It was, it was so far out of the way. Um, but I didn't want to go to a, the plant fitness wasn't a thing at the time. Um, so I found this like random ass gym and I remember the first day I went in, I like called my dad and I was like, dad, I'm so scared. Like people are like, wow, she doesn't know what she's doing. And he was just like, put your headphones in and like do your thing. No one's paying attention to you. <laughs> like that's for real. But we just yeah. like think so highly of ourselves sometimes. And he was like, no one's paying attention to you. So it started like that. I would go to the gym like five times a week. I was doing like the straight up bro split of like a leg day, an arm day, a back day, a chest day. Um, and I was trying to figure out what the heck I was doing. And I was loving it. I was researching. I was reading. I was having so much fun. Um, and it definitely started as a means to get smaller. But then I just really enjoyed it. I just so also happened to be getting smaller too. Um, and then at some point in that, I asked my friend and her boyfriend to show me the three main lifts, squat, bench, deadlift. We just literally met up one day. They showed me all three. And then I was like, okay, I got to go home and research these and like fine tune it. So I'm like at home practicing with my broomstick, getting my jam down. And at the same time, I'm like starving myself. <laughs> like I'm literally like, I'm at this point, I'm like lifting four or five days a week, running six days a week, oh my three gosh. miles oh most gosh. days. And then some days I'd go for a six mile run and I'm like small. Like, I mean, I'm five eight and I'm five seven and three quarters. <laughs> uh, I'm five eight. And I think at my lowest body weight um, of lifting, I was like one forty five, and I mean, I was I was lean as hell, like lean as hell. And you know, what's funny is looking back, I can say it now, but in that moment, I remember being like so unhappy with how I looked. Still, mm-hmm. I don't think it was like stealing myself, but there were days where I was like, nah, nah. Yep. So. 
as I started to transition, I really started to focus on powerlifting, which was really cool because it was like, how strong are you, right? Like I put the work in, it was tangible. Um, I could focus on not what my body looks like, um, but how strong my body was. And that's something you hear people say often in powerlifting. They're like, it's not about how good I look, it's about how, what my body can do. And at the time, I found that so powerful. I remember my first meet, I didn't know anyone but my best friend, but it was all women's meet home gym and everyone was like screaming and I was like this is it I love this sport so much um and I dove in like I just was super into the Instagram powerlifting I talked to everyone I was friendly supportive of everyone I was an ambassador for a while working with girls who powerlift for a really long time and it was just like my bread and butter and what happens often in fitness spaces like this is when you go in, you have these like rose colored glasses on and everything is like beautiful and smells like roses and it's red and it's perfect and everyone's friendly. <laughs> and especially when it's something that's so different from what you're used to. Like I was seeing like fat girls who were lifting, right? And I was seeing like dope chicks who were focusing on not how hot they were, but how strong they were. And I found that to be so powerful. But as I continued to get more and more and more involved, like I said, I was like in all these circles talking to all these people. I started to see like the hypocrisy of the system and how that as powerlifting continued to grow in its popularity, you started to see that the people that were represented, represented like in the mainstream of fitness to represent our sport were not actually representative of the broad majority, right? It was like these beautiful skinny women. And even aside from that, you know, people were talking about uplifting everyone and encouraging everyone. And then they'd be like, stink bitches in person right or they'd be really rude or they'd be mean like i had a meet once at our gym where this girl was there and she was so excited it was her first meet and afterwards she was saying that some girls were being rude at the meet they were laughing at this girl because she couldn't use the she couldn't set up her bench so it was like starting to really like take off those glasses and see how this powerlifting community is still really exclusive even though it felt in some, even though in some ways is is more inclusive, it still is very exclusive. And I started to see, you know, there weren't a lot of black and brown people. People were experiences being dismissed. You couldn't talk about those things. And the more I really started to dive in and get involved, the less attached I became. And at first, my response was fix it, fix it, fix it. I was like, I'm going to talk to any and everyone about diversity and inclusion, and we're going to do this shit together. And we're going to make this what we want, and we're going to do all these dope things. And then I just kind of burned out because I was like, I'm actually sick of talking to people who don't care. Yeah. And I think it does take a really special balance. That's why I love Maria and folks like her um, who are working and make it inclusive. Um, and I have an ability to kind of step back because my income isn't focused on fitness, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I was able to kind of like, all right, deuces, y'all. <laughs> like, you know, and that's kind of how I felt like I did. You know, I stopped talking to a lot of people. I cut off a lot of people. Um, and I was able to do that. My income isn't situated around it. And I still am involved in my small circles and communities. But I definitely found that I've taken a step back. I'm not as like, I'm not on the internet trying to talk to people anymore that don't want to talk to me, right? Like, um, there's only out of all my time talking about fitness, there's only one moment where I kind of had a call out instead of a call in. And I don't regret that because it still was positive in my mind. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, for the most part, it was just like me. I feel like I was talking to people who didn't care. Right. And I was talking to, you know, women who were building fucking uh, businesses and training groups around like inclusiveness and girl power. And then the minute you challenge them on something you're like, Hey, Maybe this is exclusionary. Hey, maybe you should actually use your platform to talk about trans athletes and how they're being banded, like radio silence, right? And it's like, how can you how can you say you're about all of this stuff? And when push comes to shove, you're not actually about it. And I get that people's coin is involved, 
and that gets people's followers or involved. But like, why would you want to build a following of people who don't have the same values as you? Exactly. Like, why would you want to build a I Because they don't care. They want the money, right? But like, mm-hmm. why would you want to build a business? Especially for Dan, that's my biggest thing, the hypocrisy. Like, cool, you sit in your corner, sell your shit, do your thing, whatever. But the minute you start talking about diversity and inclusion, which has definitely piked up in the last two years because it's like the buzzword, like intersectional feminism and diversity and inclusion. Everyone's been talking about it, but then when the moments arise to actually be about it, radio silence. I'm just like, oh. so it's been hard because it's like something that I am so passionate about lifting and strength. And finding strength in that, but also like understanding that this system is the same as the other systems in the society we live in, and that's still very exclusionary. I even I realized earlier when I was talking with this, I really make the point of I used to be like I focus on what my body can do and not what it looks like, and I thought that was positive, and it is some extent to some extent, right? Because you're looking at what your body can do for you. But I found that I was also placing all of my value. I went from valuing how I looked to valuing how strong I was. And that was it. Mm-hmm. And when I had dips in my strength or I was injured, or wasn't as strong as I wanted to be. I had a really hard time because my value was situated in how strong I was. And that's something that I'm currently in the process of unlearning is that I don't have to place value on either of those things, because in the end, if one of those goes away, it results in me being really unhappy, right? First, I was unhappy because of how I looked. Then I got to that point where I was like, I'm hot as hell. But then I lost that. And then I was really sad. But then I was like, oh, I'm really strong. And now that I'm not super, super strong, for whatever reason it might be, you know, I'm sad. Like, I used to be really upset. Like, if I had a bad day in the gym, I was like, oh, shit sucks. Like, I'm trash. But I'm not trash. Bad training days happen. You're not always going to be super strong. Progress isn't linear. So I think it's also just important as, like, people in fitness to not go from valuing yourself from one thing to the other because I do find that people do that. It's like they're, like, happy they're not focusing on how they look, but now they're only focusing how strong they are or how flexible they are or how good they are at their Zumba class or yoga class or whatever it might be. And then if for some reason they're not the best at that, their self-worth and self-value drops. Like, you can't keep putting yourself and your value onto these, like, things that are not linear. Like, they're not going to move positively for you all the time. Um, and that's something that I want to circle back to because I think it's so important. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so Um, glad that you did. I know you can't see me, but the whole time I'm just nodding my head so hard (laughs) because I I had such a similar situation. I mean, my background is in fitness. I spent years working as a trainer and had such a similar thing where it's funny. I think for most people in the fitness space, at least women, um, there's a lot of us have such a similar story around getting started centered around how we look We get Mm -hmm. to a point where we start doing way too much and get super (laughs) lean. And when we're at our leanest, we're at our most miserable. And then you start to come to your senses a bit and it levels out. But then you get really focused on performance. It just I can relate to so much of of what you're saying. But I also really, really want to make sure we reiterate what you said about platforms and the platforms we use and and the buzzwords that get thrown out around intersectionalism and diversity and people having these big platforms to profit off of those things, but not even being willing to have conversations about things that truly matter. I think that it is so important that we talk about that. Exactly. And it's just been like, it's, it comes in a number of, um, fashions right like one it might just be them being silent about something right they're like posting 
positive things about inclusion all the time. And then when something actually happens, it hits home. They're not commenting on it. You can't do that, y'all. Like if you want to talk about inclusion and diversity as something, especially if it's close to you, occurs in the community, it's your responsibility to call it out. Like it's your responsibility to not even call it out, but address it. Um, and then also just like, it's a big red flag if you reach out to someone to talk to them about their inclusion or their diversity and their immediate thing is um, defense. It's like, oh, well, mm-hmm. like a response you often hear is like, we don't pick people based on color. It's like, oh, all right, well, <laughs> that doesn't solve the problem, right? And like, I even recently, a friend and I were talking about this because I've had conversations like this. She reached out to a fitness apparel company and said like, hey, yo, where are the black girls? And they gave her this, the standard, like, we don't pick based on race, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, oh, shoot, I'm mixing up my stories. This is a what is a teacher. Oh, my God. Sorry. That hasn't happened in a while. Sorry. I was talking to a friend about this, but the where I'm going to is with shorts. In any way, both of these stories can be combined because yeah. it's the same thing. Um, they'll often start off with saying we don't pick based on color, yada, yada, yada. Then they'll say something like, oh, well, we pick based on who tags us and things or who reaches out to us. And my rebuttal to that is, okay, so say that is the case. Then that might – what you're trying to say is that black people don't engage with you. And if that's the case, then it's not just that, oh, black people don't engage with us or queer people don't engage with us or, you know, whatever group it may be doesn't engage with us. It's okay. They don't engage with me. Why is that? Mm -hmm. Like if you're saying, like if you're a repost people, right. And you repost people wearing your shorts and every post that you post is white girls in their shorts. And a black person says, Hey, we're the black people. If your response is, well, we just don't get as many tags. First of all, it's actually not true, but let's say it is true. Then you should be saying, okay, well, why are black people not buying my product? Mm -hmm. Why is that? Um, I was mixing up with a teacher, a teacher friend that posted something recently where he was saying that, um, some event they'd never had black educators and they're like, well, we just don't interact with the black educators. We don't want to be a part of it. I'm like, cool. The next follow-up question is why? Yep. Like, why is that? You have to con- like, just like racism didn't just casually happen. It was very intentional and strategic undoing those systems is has to be the same way. Just like creating these, um, homophobic spaces and transphobic spaces didn't just happen. It was very intentional. You have to be very intentional with breaking it down. It can't just be some like thing you throw out when you want to sell a t-shirt or throw out because it's national international women's month or whatever it might be. It has to be you very intentionally picking what you say, how you say it, how you run your business, how you engage with people um, and being open to feedback. uh, That's the number one thing. I just, it's one of my biggest pet peeves is there's, there's, that's also part of why I've disengaged a little bit with Instagram fitness because there are these people who are really, really popular in powerlifting. Um, and they just, they have these huge followings and people worship the ground they walk on. And then behind the scenes, there's people like me and many other people who have all had the same conversation with those people and how they're problematic. And the result was to shut us down and not engage with us anymore. It's like, you know, it's not worth the call out, but it's just like, oh, it's just so hard to balance like being engaged and supporting everyone and also like not wasting my energy on shit that's not gonna be heard. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And you know, I think that segues perfectly into my next question because it it's something that you've mentioned a couple of times now. And I, I would just love to kind of talk to you a little bit more about this is I think you're someone who is maybe this isn't always the case, but you have gotten really good at learning how to manage your energy and also learning that even if a cause is really great, if it's depleting you to try to, you know, talk to everybody about diversity in the fitness space or to do these things or to 
call people in if they don't want to hear it, but understanding kind of how to to manage your energy. And that really is, I think, a really powerful form of self-care. So I would just love to talk to you a little bit more about that, about what self-care looks like for you and what you do to take care of yourself in those situations. Yeah. So I admittedly have... um, I've always been crazy. This is upcoming year will probably be the first year where I have just one job. And I'm like so excited for it <laughs> because I am, I feel like I'm burnt out. It's been like a busy nine years of just grinding. Um, and to be at a place where I'm like, Oh, I can just do this one thing and live. It'll be really exciting. I am not always taking the best care of myself in the traditional sense. Like people are like, Oh, we'll take baths and like, you know, whatever. Like I just, I've always been a go, 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 goer. Um, and everyone's self care looks really different. I think, excuse me, some of the things that contribute the most to me staying sane is I'll just kind of list it off. Number one is I always say that I feel a lot of feels and I do. I used to be really ashamed about being such a feely person. Um, I'm very empathetic, empathetic. I'm very emotional. I cry a freaking lot. Um, I cry when I'm overwhelmed. I cry when I'm excited. I used to really try to hide that or, um, be really ashamed of it. And I've learned that that's just something that makes me super cool and just embraced it. So thing one, I cry a lot. I, I literally feel whatever the hell I'm feeling. And I just let myself feel it. <laughs> like, I think that's so important because we so often feel like we have to feel a certain way or react a certain way or respond a certain way. And that's just not true. Like some people are not going to be like me, but however you feel like you need to respond to something, respond in that way, as long as it's not hurting people. Yeah. For some people, it's being alone. For some people, it's talking to friends, whatever. I don't care what the hell it is, but like, <laughs> My number one thing is finding like what allows you to release and feel your feelings in a way that's true to you. For me, that's crying. I cry so fucking much. I cry so much. And even at the Marie's event, I was like, I just was so overwhelmed with being happy to be there. I was like, yo, I'm crying already. I haven't even started talking. I'm crying. But like, just that's another one thing. It's like feeling the feels. Thing two is finding something that um, makes you comfortable um and that's not always going to look the same for everyone because you know some people are super extroverted and being with people recharges them right like going to see their best friends and going out to a bar and drinking and dancing recharges them for someone else who might be sitting at someone's house and playing board games uh whatever that is is finding what recharges you and not feeling pressured or shamed about it like I am so funny because I'm very outgoing, but I'm actually really introverted. Like I recharge by myself. Mm -hmm. I spend, I'm not being dramatic, 90 to 95% of my free time, I'm alone. Like, um, and it's always because I've been in spaces that require for work a lot of communication. Um, So that could be part of it. I just get home and like, tired (laughs) but I like being alone and I remember when I first started making friends in Chicago I thought that was a bad thing like I thought there's something wrong with me because people were social and like to go out I used to try to drag myself to do these things that just weren't reflective of me and all it did in the end was make me feel worse so for me it's like finding what recharges you what recharges me Real talk is sitting at home and watching TV for six hours. Like people will shame you forever it might be, but I like no shame to my TV people. Like if I have a, like say I worked 55 hours in the week and I, for some reason have a day off or even like an F cause I rarely get full days off. Say I have an afternoon off, but some people might go to the lake, right. Or they might go to the beach. I will sit my ass at home and watch TV for six hours and pet my rabbit and just look. <laughs> And like, I'm fine with that. Right. But it's like really being comfortable in whatever that is, because 
when I just most people would shame the fuck out of me if they're like, she just watch you watch TV for six hours because there's always messages about like be productive, don't watch TV. There's nothing wrong with it. So if any of you guys are TV people, there's no shame in the game. Like, but that's what recharges me, right? And then the third thing is just really building um circles of friendship and community that really align with who you are and what you value. Um, I think that's something that's really been important, especially as I've I've been exploring my work in social justice and inclusion. Uh, I don't remember having conversations like this as a kid or in high school because I just didn't have friends like this. I also wasn't involved in things like this. Um, But in my adult life, one of my like foundations, which I never would have thought have been friends who just understand, right? Like they align with me. We have the same values and we can talk. I remember there was um, a really bad day that I was having and I was just super stressed out about some nonsense. And like five of my like gym friends who've like, they're most of my friends are my gym friends. Um, but they, they all like all my friends, they, they have an understanding of this work and they have a passion for it. And we just all got together and like, just, we like sat on the floor and ate food and just chatted about life and like social things. And I think that's just really refreshing because it is nice to have those conversations, even if it sometimes is just for validation to feel like you're not going crazy, to be like, hey, I'm not the only person seeing this shit. I'm not the only person struggling with this. Um, and just having that sense of community, even if you're all a hot ass mess, <laughs> just having like to be a hot ass mess together is really special, <laughs> um, whatever that might look like. So, yeah, those are my, like my three, three things. One, feel the feels to find a way to recharge that's true to you and three if you can build a community i understand that we don't all have access to that but it doesn't have to be in person it could be internet like some of my closest friends are internet friends that i see like once or twice a year yeah um but those are people who i know i can talk to um who can talk candidly with and it's just it's interesting how close you can get to someone on the internet and don't let people shame you for that <laughs> no totally i think that those are all fantastic and i even you know you just saying that allowing yourself to feel the feels is a form of self-care i'm like man it is i need to learn how to be better about that because it really is so so important to let ourselves really feel what we're feeling and express it and not shame ourselves for having emotion i think that's powerful because we're more trained to not especially as women it's like it's a sign of weakness but it's been the most powerful thing for me is like reclaiming my feelings and being like, if I'm mad, I'm mad. Mm. If I'm sad, I'm sad. If I'm geeked as hell, I'm geeked as hell. Right. Like even things like that, like being too happy, um, is a thing. People like, Oh, she gets too excited. I remember this like human being that I was like obsessed with for a while. Um, he one day said to her friend, ah, she's just too much. Mm. And I was like so hurt at the time because I was like, too much what? Like, I'm just yeah. <laughs> like, you know, um, and so after that, I remember shortly after that, someone had posted a meme. It's like Naomi Campbell, like making some face. And it's like, before you say I'm too much, ask yourself, are you even enough? Mm-hmm. And I was like, yes. <laughs> I was like, so literally, but for real, like there's just, there's no limit to the feels. And like, we got to destigmatize the feelings. Yes. Oh, yes, we do. And I'm also challenging myself to, to do that as well. Do it. Yes. So Adrian, what does being a balanced black girl mean to you? Being a balanced black girl to me. Gosh, it's such a complicated question. Um, That's why honestly, I like to ask for, it. Yeah. For me, it's, 
Oh, I guess it's like, oh my God, fulfilling myself in a way that's true to me, like mm-hmm. whatever that might look like, cause that's going to look different on everyone, but doing things that fulfills me. I always say this phrase of, um, I God, I say, I always say a lot too. It's hard. Cause I'm like, oh, I say this a lot, but like, you know, unless you know me personally, you don't know that, <laughs> but, um, I say things that make my heart race. Like I'll, I'll just be over here doing things that make my heart race. Um, and that even goes back to this idea of feelings because, I do feel so much that whether I'm happy or sad or anxious or happy, my heart's racing, right? Like I just get those feels, those butterflies and there's nothing that's more, um, there's, it's irreplaceable feeling of like having those butterflies and having your heart race about something that you're passionate about. Um, and it'll look different week to week and day to day and just allowing myself to follow those ebbs and flows and continuously be self-reflecting on how it impacts me. Like being balanced, being a balanced black girl for me is being honest with myself about how I feel, following how I feel and not being ashamed of it and knowing that that shit will change. Like it'll change, but as long as I am doing things that make my heart race and as long as I am following my intuition, then I'm going to be all right. (laughs) Like, yeah, that's that's what that means to me. <laughs> so good. That just made me happy hearing that. Because everyone's answer is always so different. But I, I really yeah. love that perspective. Woo-hoo. Yeah. So Adrian, how can our audience keep in touch with you? And how can we support your work? Um, yeah, so I am on the good old gram. Um, it's Adrienne as an A-D-R-I-E-N-N-E, who with an extra O. Um, I really am trying to get more. It's funny because I'm in this transition of like I was for a while posting about powerlifting and fitness a lot. And I just kind of disappeared because this last year was crazy. Um, and then I really want to share a lot about education because I feel like it's something people don't have access to, don't know a lot about. So my goal is to really start being more active there. I have a blog that I have that I've not made publicly available, but I'm probably going to really just start updating that on like school things and just figuring out what this next year looks like. I've, um, accepted a new school teaching position and it's something completely different than anything I've done before. Um, I'm always on the fence about saying it just because it, I don't care. It's a public Montessori in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm hesitant about it because there's not a lot of them. So it would be really easy to like narrow down whatever ones there are and like figure it out. But whatever. I'm, people aren't going to do that. Um, I'm just kidding. But it's a Montessori system is so different than what I've trained in, what I know. But I also think it's just the most conducive to really having an environment that is the most positive for learning. Um, so I'm excited about that. I'm going to be learning in that process. So trying to share some of that. And then as of now with my new classroom, y'all, I'm working on getting stuff. It's so funny. I made a book wish list on Amazon, which I tried to use, but Amazon was just the easiest way to do it. Mm-hmm. And I shared it out. And within like 20, it was like 32 hours ever. All the books are purchased. Amazing. So, so I was like, this is so great. And then people were like, how can we help still? And I was like, I don't know. So um, <laughs> I'm hopefully going to update that. And I will share it on my Instagram when I do with school supplies as I'm getting into the classroom in August and seeing what we need. Um, especially with the being Montessori, there's set learning tools, but there's also really cool environmental things. Like there's a kitchen and like the teacher that I'm replacing, she had a kitchen in her room and like the kids could literally cook in there as like a part of learning for them. So It'll probably be little things of that nature, but I guess at this point, 
Instagram is the best way to find me and anything that I do from there will be shared on there. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. Well, I'm so excited for what's to come for you. We will be sure to link your Instagram in the show notes so that folks can follow you so that they can follow your blog once it's up and running again. And uh, so that we can support you and support your students with supplies when the time comes. I appreciate it so much. This is so fun. I usually am like, it's so funny. I've done a number of interviewing things and podcasts, but this is, I just love talking about this stuff. So I really appreciate you like giving me the platform to do that. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you being here. I loved this conversation and I had so much fun talking to you. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. (laughs) 